I'm trying to follow counsel I gave about four weeks ago. I preached a message on the reality of fear, and I quoted Seth Godin, who said that we should be really careful to curate our incoming. We should be careful to, to sort through and, and carefully select the amount of news that we're taking in, especially in moments like this. And I've been trying to take that counsel. I've been trying to spend a lot more time in God's Word than I am in just surfing social media platforms or sur surfing the media and, and checking out the news. But last week, reading the news, I just found myself troubled. And as I was reading the news, it was raising questions for me. So just last week, I, I try to stay aware of the death toll as a, as a result of COVID crisis. 70, as of Saturday, it was 77,000 people in the U.S. have died from the coronavirus. 272,000 people worldwide. Those are staggering numbers. This past week, you're probably aware of this movie, Plandemic. It's a conspiracy, uh, it's a viral conspiracy video that's going out. As of a couple days ago, it had like 1.7 million YouTube views. And what the, the writers of this video are suggesting is that the pandemic was actually planned, that the coronavirus was created so that profits could be made off of vaccines. Guys, this kind of stuff is very troubling to us. And I've been thinking about a question that I've been asked and then I've seen different pastors and, and, and articles on blogs dealing with. And it's a, this question goes like this. Is COVID-19 the judgment of God? You start asking yourself these questions. As the discomfort of, this, of the disruption continues, perhaps for you, as we grow weary of that, these questions bubble to the surface. And as we talk about the disruption continuing, let's, let me just be clear that we as the elders have been just talking about this and trying to, to lead with wisdom. But as we've been thinking through what reentry looks like for us and listening to the governor and, and the, the talk of the reentry phases, we're not going to be getting together anytime soon for our corporate gatherings. We think it's going to be minimally mid-June before we were able to consider that. Know this though, um, I want you to know that so that you're not antsy about when we're going to be getting back to the church, but also so that you can be praying for us th and th uh, thinking about this with us and know that the elders and there's a team that's about task force that's been formed to think through what does BGC Kids look like when we re-enter, what does re-entry look like for the church, all those things are being thought of, but we're not going to be uh, we're not going to be back in the church for at least for another uh, five, six weeks. And even that's going to be continually reevaluated. But as the, the discomfort of the disruption continues, and maybe for some, anxieties spike, and we experience uh, challenges in a different way, maybe just being cooped up, you're feeling irritable, you're feeling angry with, the, with your family, feeling lonely. Maybe the news is inciting your fears. Maybe you're just feeling like me. You're just, you're just weary of it. As that happens, we ask questions. Questions like, where is God in this? Where is God in the coronavirus? 
What is he doing? Are you ruling over this? Lord, are you seeing what's going on? Lord, the psalmist always often prayed like this. They would say, how long, O Lord? How long? I, 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 I don't know how long I can deal with this discomfort. Pain always does this. Pain and discomfort and suffering and evil always raises those kinds of questions. God, where are you? What are you doing? Reading the news last week about and watching the video of the Ahmad Arbery shooting. So troubling. So troubling. And our hearts long for justice. And our hearts cry out, how long, O oh Lord? What are you doing? Where are you? Each week, every week, when 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 Jairus or I preach God's word, preaching at its best is, open up the, is opening up the word of God, looking for Jesus, and, and placing us before Jesus so that we see Jesus more clearly, so that we're drawn to Jesus, so that we see him as the great Savior that he is. Preaching at its best gets at the, it, it, it gets down deep into our hearts and it preaches to our desires, our inner yearnings, and the deep questions we have. It comforts us when we need comforting. It challenges us when we need challenging. But today, as we, as we think a little bit about these questions, questions like, what, where are you, God? What are you doing? Where are you in all of this? Is this your judgment on us? We want to deal with some of those questions. The reason why I want, I want to deal with them is because I want to, I want to lay out the, the problem of pain, the problem of pandemics, the problem of suffering, and the kinds of questions that surface so that we can look to God's Word for the solution, so that we can, so that we in the coming weeks can look at these attributes of God, His love for us, his sovereign rule over all things, his infinite wisdom, and how those attributes of God actually comfort us in our moments of sorrow and in our moments of pain. Will preaching today answer all of your questions? Will it, will it deal with every doubt that you have? Far from it. A lot of holes will remain, there'll be some ragged edges will remain, because we long, we long for more clarity. We, we long in the deepest places of our hearts for more clarity than we have. The promised church is one day we will have it. One day we will have the clarity that we long for. Paul said it like this in 1 Corinthians 13. Now we see only as in a reflection, as in a mirror, but one day we will see face to face. One day, church, we will see Jesus face to face. Now we know in part, then we shall know fully, even as we are fully known. That promise is a promise in the future. It awaits us. But let's move to some scriptures. I want to look at two sections of scripture, short sections of scripture, and I want to go to them with these questions in mind. Where are you going? What are you doing? Is this your judgment? And how should we respond? So quickly, to Ephesians 
1, I want you to take a look at Ephesians chapter 1, and I want you to look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. So Ephesians 1, put your finger there, and then go to Romans 8, and we'll look at verses 20 and 21. Let's read and pray and get to work. Ephesians 1, 11. It begins this way. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Romans 8, 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Lord, we pray that in these moments of pain, disruption, discomfort, Lord, when we're struggling perhaps with irritability, with questions we have about your rule over all things, Lord, I pray that you would help us. Help us, Lord. Remember that we're weak that we're frail, that we're made of dust. Lord, thank you that one day there's this promise that we will see you face to face. Now we must walk by faith. Would you give us a glimpse of you? Would you comfort our hearts? Would you challenge us where we need challenging that we might trust in you, the God that we long for? In Jesus' name, amen. Let me just tell you what my main point is as we look at these two sections of Scripture. Uh, my main point, which I've taken from a quote, it's a modified quote of, of Charles Spurgeon. And what he said was uh, something like this, and this will function as the main point of the sermon. When we cannot trace God's hand, we must trust God's heart. When we cannot trace God's hand, we must trust God's heart. So I want to deal with the first part of that phrase, tracing God's hand. We can't trace God's hand. And that's what creates questions for us and dilemma for us. That's why we ask, where are you, God? What are you doing? We can't trace your hand. We don't understand your ways. Look at this Ephesians 1.11. It says, our salvation was secured according to the purpose of him God, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The scripture tells us that God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. So the question that I want to ask us, family, church family, do we really believe, do you really believe that God governs all things? What does all include? What did Paul mean to include when he said that God works all things together for good? What did he mean here when he says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will? Does God govern all things? Does God govern the good things in our lives and the bad things? Our response to that question has huge implications 
for us. It has huge implications for our understanding of who God is, and it will influence our worship of Him, our love for Him, and our trust in Him. Who is your God? And what is He capable of? And what is His capacity? Does He truly govern all things? A lot of people are comfortable, are comfortable giving God credit with certain things. One of the things I'm always fascinated by when I watch the awards, when I see the Grammys or the Oscars or big sporting events, like when the, the athletes are interviewed after the Super Bowl or, or NBA championship, oftentimes athletes and artists, one of the first things they do is they give credit to God. So there's this, there's this idea that it's completely comfortable, even in a secular society, to give God credit where credit is due, to give God credit for our successes. It's like when things go well, we're willing, maybe even a little obliged, to give the man upstairs some credit. But what about when bad things happen? Does God take the credit for those things? In other words, is he governing over those things as well? We'll be comfortable giving God the credit when the country begins to reopen, when there's a, a vaccine for the coronavirus, when we're able to put this all behind us. But we're wrestling with a more troubling idea here, and the idea is, is God governing in some way, superintending COVID? Church, if God is not ruling over corona and not giving direction according to the counsel of his will, then this verse can't mean all things. And Paul can't mean all things when he says all things. We, what we must think he means then is God works some things according to the counsel of his will. Or, or maybe we mean God works good things, not bad things, according to the counsel of his will. Or maybe we mean God works the things that we're comfortable with imagining God working according to the counsel of his will. Church, a clear reading of this text tells me that God works all things. All things are being governed according to the counsel of his will. That means that there is no thing, nothing that is outside of his sovereign control. Nothing. That means he, he governs over all things. We've got to wrestle with the hard realities that that, that, that surfaces in us. That surfaces questions maybe that you don't want to think about. But, but these are the questions that are deep in our soul. He governs all things. And if he governs all things, he governs COVID-19. He governs over the deaths. He governs over the pain. He governs over the suffering. He governs over the disruption. He governs over the economic troubles that, he will, that this will create. If he is not governing, then who is? Is no one in control? Or did he turn control over to someone else? No, church. The scripture says that God governs 
all things according to the counsel of his will. It says his will. His will? Is this his will? Is his, his will is unfolding in our lives right here and right now. And when we suffer, though, when we suffer through a pandemic, when we suffer through pain, disruption, suffering of any kind, it causes us to question because it's hard to trace his hand. We can't trace God's hand. We don't understand his ways. The scripture tells us that his ways are inscrutable. That, that no one could ever under, understand them. We, we, couldn't, we couldn't hold it all. It's, it's a massive amount of truth, of infinite truth for tiny little minds. We can't contemplate his greatness. His greatness, the scripture tells us, no one can fathom. He's accomplishing billions and billions of things right now. He's doing it according to the counsel of his will. He's governing all things, billions of things right now, governing them all. And it's difficult for us to trace. We can't trace it. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. It's difficult to follow God's logic. It's difficult to follow God's ways. And when we can't trace his hand, when we're suffering, when we're confused, we start to ask questions. God, where are you? What are you doing? And one of the questions that I've uh, been talking with some people about a little bit and reading about a little bit is a question that has surfaced. Is COVID-19 the judgment of God? Is the pandemic some form of punishment? How should we respond to that? And Romans 8 speaks to it. Flip back to Romans 8. Is COVID-19 the judgment of God? Is the pandemic punishment? Categorically, without nuance, we can answer that question, yes. Yes. COVID-19 is an expression of God's far-reaching judgment against sin. When God created Adam and Eve and he put them in the garden, before their rebellion, before they turned away from God, before they distrusted him, there was no viruses. There was no disease. There was no disastrous curses. Sin and death entered the world through their sin and their rebellion. Since the fall, we all exist spiritually alienated and separated from God because of our sin. And so we see God's judgment against sin in the world today. We see it in a number of ways, in what theologians might refer to as natural evil. We see God's judgment against sin in massive tsunamis, in hurricanes, in earthquakes, in cancer, in COVID. This is why Romans 8 tells us, look at what it tells us. Romans 8 tells us, for the creation waits with longing for the revealing, or for the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption 
and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The world is broken because of sin. The world is experiencing God's judgment for its rebellion. And it groans. Groans. Deadly viruses. All other expressions of natural evil. All other expressions of this cursed world are expressions of God's judgment against sin. This is why you'll hear us say we live in a fallen world, in a broken world. The world is not as it will one day be. When God returns, when Jesus returns in glory and he establishes the new heaven and the new earth, we will not experience diseases and disastrous curses. The scripture tells us he'll wipe every tear from every eye and there will be no more pain, no more sin, no more suffering at all. That's not the world we live in now, though. Sin is the reason why all physical misery exists. The Bible shows sin to be the origin of global devastation and global misery. Paul says in Romans 5, verse 12, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The world has been broken ever since sin entered the world and has spread through mankind. All of the beauty of this world, of which there is much, the scripture tells us that the earth is full of God's glory. All the beauty of this world is mixed with evil and disasters and diseases and frustrations that cause it to groan in agony. The Bible doesn't just see this brokenness as as just natural. The Bible sees the brokenness of the world and the groaning that it is under as the judgment of God on a world permeated with sin. That's what the scripture says. Futility. Bondage to corruption. Groaning. These are words graphically used, vividly used, to describe the, the judgment of the, this world, of, of God on this world for sin and rebellion. Subjected to futility, it says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Who subjected it? Creation's been subjected to futility because of him who subjected it. Who, who was he talking about? Adam? Adam subjected it? Or I think a logical conclusion that most of us would have is Satan subjected it. That the enemy subjected it. But I'm going to give you rock-solid assurance that the him who subjected it is not Satan and it's not Adam. And it's in the next two words that follow. In hope. Was, creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope. Who does things in hope? Does Satan subject things 
to futility and hope. Satan doesn't have any hope for us. Satan doesn't have any hope for the world. It's not Satan. Adam didn't do it in hope. Who did it? Who subjected creation to futility in hope that one day the creation would, would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain freedom of the sin of the glory and the glory of the children of God? Who did that, church? God did that. God has done that. God is doing that. And he did it in hope. In hope, in hope, in hope, in hope. When we cannot trace God's hand, which we cannot in times of pain and disruption, we can't trace his hand. We don't understand what he's doing. We don't see his presence. He is not silent. He has given us his word, but it seems sometimes like he's silent. We can't trace his hand. What should we do, church? We should trust his heart. We should trust his heart. We have hope. We can trust him. When we can't trace God's hand, we must trust God's heart. His heart is where we find our hope. And this passage is full of hope. You see it right there. In hope that the creation itself will be one day set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God has this incredible plan for his people. He's got this incredible plan for his creation. If you are in Christ, your best days are ahead of you, not behind you. If you are in Christ, there, there will be coming a day where there will be no, no more suffering, no more disease, no more frustration, no more pain, no more sorrow, and you will be with Jesus face to face in glory forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Church, do you say amen to that? Can you say amen from where you you're seated. Does that fill your heart with hope and joy when you think about what Christ has purchased for you? That the judgment that you most surely deserve because of your sinful rebellion against God has fallen upon Jesus. And because you have trusted in him, he's received that punishment in your place. And now you have this promise of a future where you are set free from bondage to corruption and you obtain the freedom of the glory that is yours as children of God. Amen. But in this world, we have trouble. In this world, we experience pain and suffering. God's children experience pain and suffering. Those that have believed in Christ, that are Christians, they're in Christ, they experience pain and suffering. We're not exempt from it, right? Christians get swept away in tsunamis. Christians get killed in hurricanes. Christians die of cancer. Christians get the coronavirus. Christians suffer. But here's the thing, and this is the important thing. This is where we find our hope. For Christians, those that are in Christ, that have Jesus as their great treasure, our experience of this corruption is not condemnation. That's why Paul said in the beginning of Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus? If you're in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. That means that the judgment that, that this broken world is experiencing is not condemnation for you. Jesus was condemned for you so that you might not experience condemnation. What you're experiencing is corruption. God is not punishing us. God is purifying us. 
God uses suffering in our lives, and you see this over and over in the pages of Scripture. God uses suffering in our lives to produce character, to produce perseverance. He uses suffering. He does things with suffering. We would never choose for ourselves, but He conforms us into the image of Jesus, and He uses it, if we're trained by it, to grow in our love and our, our, our joy and our confidence in Christ. God's purifying us, church. God has not destined us for wrath. God's judgment for sin in this broken world is not proof that he has condemned us. For those in Christ, the sting of death has been removed. Don't you rejoice over this, church? When we pass through the pain of death, we will one day see Jesus face to face. To be sure, COVID's, COVID's, uh, the COVID crisis and the disease are not God's punishment for you, but he is using it to purify you. What's he purifying you of, church? Brothers and sisters, what's he doing in your life? Are you thinking about that? Are you, is he changing you? Boy, I hope we don't waste this. I hope, I hope that, what, that we're slowing down enough and we're disrupted enough to look around and say, God, what are you doing here? What are you teaching me? What are you speaking to me? How are you seeking to help me right now? How are you wanting to draw me closer to Jesus? And then as he does that, I hope that we'll look back on this and say, God did something in my life. God used that suffering. God used that disruption to teach me something about himself. And I'm closer to Jesus as a result. He purified me. He made me more like Jesus. Now, I want to ask a question. Why? And this is, I was reading John Piper on this. He wrote a great book very quickly called Coronavirus in Christ that I read last week. It's really good. You guys should check it out. But he asked this question, why does God bring a physical, nat a natural judgment on the world for moral evil? So then Adam and Eve rebel against God, and then they experience judgment. They experience death. They turn away from God. They prefer their way to God's way. They prefer independence from God to trusting God. They turn away from him. They prefer other treasures. They prefer false gods to him. And it was sin first in the soul. It was first against God. Sin begins in here and then it moves out of here. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. God responds to this moral rebellion, this spiritual rebellion, by subjecting the world to disaster and misery. But why would he do that? Why not just keep the, the punishment in the spiritual sense? Why, why allow for this groaning in the world, for this physical, why put the physical world under a curse? And John Piper Open my eyes to something this week that I think is helpful for you and I to see. God put the physical world under a curse so that the physical horrors we see around us, like diseases and calamities and pain and suffering and evil, would be a vivid picture for us of how horrible sin against God is. 
physical evil, physical pain, is a signpost that points to the moral outrage of rebellion against God. And frankly, church, this is something we don't think about too often. We don't think. We go through our days not giving much thought to how we have belittled God, how we've strayed from Him, how we choose false gods to worship, and we reject Him in our hearts and in our minds and, and in our words and in our actions. We don't give a lot of thought to that. What pain does is it gets our attention. Isn't it true? Doesn't suffering, physical suffering, emotional suffering, mental suffering, spiritual suffering, doesn't that get your attention? Physical pain is a signpost that points to God's judgment for sin. Why? Why would he need to do that? Because we're blinded by our sin. We can't see it. We can't feel how repulsive it is. We lose sleep over a lot of things, but hardly ever our treatment of God. We lose sleep over our 401k, our financial condition, but we don't lose any sleep over our daily rebellion against God, our neglect of Him, our rebellion of Him, our love of Him, but we feel physical pain. Hospital wards can be holy places because there are places where people are confronting who they are and who God is and their need for Him. Physical pain shouts to us. There's a, there's a reason why. Have you ever wondered why the, in the New Testament we read so often of leprosy? What is leprosy a picture of? It's a picture of how it's a, it's a physical disease, a calamity, it's pain, it's suffering. It's a vivid picture of how horrible sin is. Physical evil, physical pain, they're signposts that point to, point to the moral outrage of God. Pain is like a trumpet blast of God to tell us that something's wrong with the world. That's how leprosy was used in the Bible, to give us a picture of what spiritual deformity looks like. Pandemics and calamities are a preview of what sin deserves. And will one day receive in judgment a thousand, thousand, thousand times worse than COVID. We must remember the importance of God's judgment for sin and the punishment of sin for his people. COVID reminds us that there's a worse judgment coming for those not found in him. God's temporary judgments of sin should create in us a fear, a terrifying fear that drives us to the only escape. It's almost like we've, we've, what, what pain does is it drives us to the end. We run to the end and we stand before this ocean and we see where we want to be. We want to be with God. We want to be with, with God for all of eternity. We want to be in heaven, the place we were created for. But we look out across this vast sea and we just realize... I've gotten to the edge. I can't get there. I can't get to God. And that is true. You can't get to God. There's this chasm that exists because of our rebellion against Him and because of how holy He is. The truth of the gospel, and here's where we find our hope, church, is that God built a raft, a, a cross, and, and sent Jesus to come to the land in which we are, this broken world. He sent Jesus into it to come get us and to take us 
home to him. We could never get to God on our own. God came to get us in Jesus. This is where we find our hope. But this pain that we experience, this physical suffering that we see all around us, it shows us how offensive it is our sin is and how horribly spiritually deforming it is. And, and it shows us what we deserve apart from Christ. It shows us what we deserve for ignoring Him, for detesting God, for distrusting Him, for demeaning Him, for giving Him less attention in our hearts than we give to our Amazon cards. This is, this is what God is doing to show us this. We need to see this, we need to feel this, or we won't turn from the ugliness of our sin to the hope that is offered in Jesus, our beautiful Jesus who suffers in our place to save us. God is mercifully showing us to us in these days, in these days of discomfort. God wants to redeem this. God wants to use this. He's governing over this. We can't trust his hand, but we can trust his heart. What do we see in his heart? We see him sending Jesus to rescue us, to save us. We see him mercifully showing us, while there's still time to respond, how, how the spiritual deformity of sin shown in the physical brokenness of this world and even our experience of COVID Sin against God. God is shouting, wake up. Sin against me is like this. It's horrible and it's ugly and it's way more dangerous and it's way more disruptive than COVID. Turn to Jesus and be rescued. Turn to Jesus and be saved. Be rescued from bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Church, when we can't see God's hand, we must trust his heart. When we cannot see God's hand, we must trust his heart. I, I want to give one thought of application before we conclude. And the thought of application is this. There's a lot of speculation going on about what God's doing. When we get back to that question, is God judging America? Is he judging the world? Is this a plague of some sort and judgment of sin? Yes, it is judgment. But I think there's a lot of speculation that goes along with this that, that Christians are doing and, and people who would not say they're Christians are doing. And, and that's what produces a lot of fearful conspiracy theories and conspiracy videos. And we give too much time to those things, church, and we don't give enough time to reality. We give a lot of time allowing our minds to spin on things that we don't know whether they're true or not, and we ignore what is true. God has given us everything we need, even in this fallen, broken world, everything we need to trust Him. We may not be able to trace His hand. We can't solve the problem of suffering, but we can trust His heart because He's given us what we need. Speculation and and. And spending a lot of time watching things that are, that are total speculation about things, that are, not, that are not grounded in truth, or maybe there's just a, a, a segment or a figment of truth in it, but it's created to inspire fear, which is what most news, news is. It's created to agitate your fears and to incite your anxieties. And so I think it's wise for us to not contribute to speculation. What is, what is God doing? Do you know? 
Have you entered the mind of God? Have you shared with God? Do you know exactly what he's accomplishing? And the billions of things he's doing with COVID right now, are you confident that you can speak on his behalf? Church, I'm telling you that we can only speculate as to what we think God's reasons are for this, other than what we know to be true. And I've spoken truth to you this morning. We, we should not be speculating about things that are untrue because it's unhelpful. And, and we, we might listen to things and even say things that itch people's ears, that, that get us all excited, but they might not be true because we don't have the security clearance to serve on God's counsel. We haven't been given that kind of clearance. What God calls us to in, this, in the brokenness of this world is to trust him. And so I want to urge us to be careful of speculation and sp careful of spreading rumors and, and uh, spreading lies that would not be helpful to brothers and sisters in Christ or to those who are perhaps coming to Christ. Let me conclude with these thoughts. When we can't trace his hand, we got to trust his heart. When we can't trace God's hand, we must tr trust God's heart. The truth of what God has provided in Jesus is what separates Christianity from every major religion and philosophy. No one else offers forgiveness and peace with God. As a Christian then, a Christian then, is not a person who has solved the problem of suffering. Don't try to do that with your friends. If your friends are asking you questions, your neighbors are asking questions, don't come across as if you understand or have solved the problem of suffering. You haven't, you won't. A Christian is not a person who's solved the problem of suffering. A, Tristan, a Christian is someone who has come to love the God who suffered for them can't solve the problem of suffering. What we can do is trust the God who suffered for us. We can't interpret God's character by our circumstances. What we should do is interpret our circumstances by God's character. And that's what we're going to be doing for the next one, few weeks. Church, let's remember this week. We cannot, when we cannot trace God's hand, we must trust God's heart. Amen.